I'm Afshin Ratansi, and welcome back to Going Underground Broadcasting all around the world from Dubai in the UAE. Ukraine's President Zelensky upped his demands to join NATO this week at the Military Alliance's 2023 summit, strategically located in Russia's neighbor, Lithuania. This despite U.S. President Joe Biden insisting Ukraine's membership should not be fast-tracked, as it would mean open, all-out war with Russia. The risk, only the end of the world, as prospects for nuclear war become reality, with Beijing still in the queue over Taiwan, is Moscow ready now to attack? One ex-chief at the U.S. Counterterrorist Center's Weapons of Mass Destruction Department thinks it soon might be as WMD use becomes the rational option. Rolf Moet Larsen was a CIA officer for over 20 years and at one time was station chief in Moscow. He's now a senior fellow at Harvard University's Belfast Center. He joins me now from Washington, D.C. Rolf, thank you so much for uh, coming on. I should just start, actually, with cluster bombs, I suppose, because as an ex-WMD department chief at the, uh, the Counter-Terror Center, I wonder what you make of this decision by the Biden administration, causing a fair degree of uh, consternation in Western Europe, to send cluster bombs to Zelensky just uh, not long after Jen Psaki at the White House before had said that if it were true that Russia had used them, it would potentially be a war crime. Well, certainly there has to be consistency in what we consider war crimes in uh, in, in war. And, and to that extent, I'll leave that to the experts on what's the right kind of weapons to introduce when. I will only say that that we find ourselves in this position uh, after almost two years of war because there's been a steady increase in the lethality and the escalation of the weapons used in the war. Right now, we're talking about cluster bombs. And, and we've talked defensive weapons, and we're talking increasingly what Ukraine will need to win the war earlier is the idea behind Western thinking. And that would, of course, save a lot of people from being killed and as for the to the extent that this war is prolonged by not giving Ukraine the weapons it needs to win the war. The danger, of course, is it escalates beyond uh, an acceptable boundary for 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 the entire world. Or have you got it upside down? In fact, the sending of weapons has lengthened the war because the war would have been over uh, instantly or within a few months. Uh, the only reason that Ukraine can keep fighting is because not only are the US, the European powers sending in billions of dollars of weapons, they have soldiers there, according to Jack Texera and the Pentagon leaks, which I know you said was, uh, it's bad when you heard about the uh, Pentagon leaks. Yes. Well, certainly trainers and experts to, with, for example, maintenance and things like that, I had assumed were involved in the war. I think the idea of a direct conflict with the Russians is something the United States and all NATO partners want to avoid to ground combat uh, with our soldiers against their soldiers. So I'd make that distinction. That's an important distinction. I, I also agree with you in principle in the sense that uh, Ukraine is utterly dependent on Western uh, weapons. And it is, in fact, the litmus test of the West degree of support and Zelensky, President Zelensky, President Putin, and everybody knows the degree to which the West is willing to continue to arm Ukraine. That's going to determine not just the duration of the war, but ultimately who wins the war. So it's a test, really, not of weapon supplies and how, when and how we supply these weapons, but the level of U.S. and NATO commitment to Ukraine's uh, winning this war as in the core interests of the United States and the NATO alliance. I mean, everyone loses in a war, obviously. You really think uh, what's in question here is who will win the war? Do you actually think that Russia will somehow lose this war? 
Right. It's certainly very possible. They lost the war in Afghanistan. It took 10 years, but they can certainly lose this war. In fact, if you go back, trying to take out the the who's who's rooting for what side here, uh, if you take the issue of what countries have gone and invaded other countries since World War II and, and, and sort of stayed to, to savor a victory, including the United States in the, in the last 20 years in Iraq and Afghanistan. So I'd say the odds are against the Russians in the long term because the Ukrainians have nowhere to go. It's their country. They're fighting for their survival. Uh, the, the Russians' worst problem, I think, uh, is, is indisputable, is terrible morale among its soldiers because they're not fighting for their core interests. They're fighting to occupy another sovereign nation. I mean, some might say that the Afghanistan conflict was very different fighting the U.S. proxy Mujahideen that would morph into al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. But in any case, if we take on uh, what you're predicting and forecasting, that uh, it is possible... Uh, that uh, Russia could lose the war. You've, you've said that the greatest concern for you is that at some point in the next year, Putin will decide his army is no longer capable of taking back what uh, they consider Russia, parts of Russia. I should say, they say the war started in 2014 with the coup. Is that when nuclear weapons uh, use become the issue? I mean, we've had Karaganov on this show talking about tactical nuclear weapons, and I know this is a field of your expertise. Well, I think it's a great question. Uh, when Sergei Karaganov made his speech, essentially predicting, in a sense, that Russia would need to use nuclear weapons to win the war, and maybe should, which was a, a novel wrinkle. First, I would say Karaganov is only saying what he he believes the Kremlin would support. That's been his history, uh, and, and he's, he's it's useful that he's not a government official. Uh, but at the same time, it's a very notable statement. And it's what I've been concerned about since the beginning of the war isn't that the use of nuclear weapons is inevitable, but that they may become necessary, as, as you indicated, in the event Putin can't win the war through any other means. I'm certain he's going to try everything possible before he resorts to using nuclear weapons. I don't think Putin or the Kremlin believe it would be a good idea to use nuclear weapons. But if they're faced with a situation where they feel they must in order to win, or they may lose if they do not. I think the U the U.S. and the NATO alliance really have three three uh, challenges to prepare for that. Number one is to do everything possible before that to deter uh, President Putin from making that decision, including what, not arm Ukraine. Well, I know you've got two the more war, points. The, 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 uh, well, though I believe I personally believe that the idea that the U.S. and NATO must support, defend Ukraine is something we promised them when they became a sovereign nation. In fact, I'd turn your argument on its head. I'd say when this whole situation is something is a, is a disaster for Russia that it created for itself when it started in 2005 to try to assassinate Viktor Yushchenko, the president of Ukraine, and then blame the U.S. and the West for destabilizing Viktor Yanukovych in 2014, when it was in fact the corruption of that regime that the Ukrainians themselves I know we're only at point again. one, but you said a sovereign nation. We have the phone call of Victoria Newland deciding on who becomes the leader of Ukraine in 2014, don't we? So no, it's the U.S. No, no, it was a, a U.S. appointee who is now in the Biden administration who decided. Well, so I disagree was Ukraine sovereign? Yes. And in fact, the idea that the U.S. is some puppet master in Ukraine or for that, frankly, anywhere in the world. People can watch the YouTube video. Of Newland deciding who's going to run Ukraine. And uh, as for a sovereign nation, are you saying, therefore, that Zelensky is in charge in Ukraine? I know he's banned all opposition parties. He's uh, banned elections next year. 
So I don't think it's much about democracy, arguably. And he said last year he knew Ukraine would never be able to join NATO, but publicly the doors would appear open. And to quote Biden, it would be an Israeli-style security agreement between NATO and Kiev. I mean, some might say that uh, uh, Western European nations aren't that sovereign at the moment, given how many uh, uh, the demands of uh, Washington to support this war and pour billions of dollars of weapons into Ukraine at the expense of their own economies. Germany are entering recession now. Well, again, my, my view is, having spent my entire life in the U.S. government, is the U.S. government is not as powerful as, as people believe. We are not a puppet master. We don't dictate to Ukraine who will be its presidents. I refute, for example, Russian arguments that we've intervened in the, in the domestic affairs of Russia by, by helping Boris Yeltsin get reelected in 1996, which the U.S. election advisors did, in fact, do. But it's a fundamentally different thing than the world deciding that a country is sovereign after the collapse of the Soviet Union, as in the case of Ukraine, that then received Western security guarantees that the Russians themselves never accepted. And it's, I think it's a fair, it's a fair re re rebuttal of your argument to suggest that Russia itself has never accepted the idea that Ukraine should be anything other than uh, fully integrated into Russia. And that's why we are where we are today, not because of U.S. interference, because had Yanukovych actually been an effective leader, I would, I, I, I would maintain then, then he wouldn't have been overthrown. The, the well, he so was still there. Result. He was still there in the country when they, uh, they vetoed his uh, uh, presidency because it was a coup after, after all. It wasn't, mean, a, it wasn't an American coup. It was a Ukrainian coup. Well, it's not like the U.S. said to the Ukrainians that it supported rise up and overthrow. It was the Ukrainians themselves who were, who were rebelling against a highly corrupt government. And that's the problem with, with authoritarian states is they inevitably are corrupted to the point people, like in the Arab Spring, for example, re rebel against the government. And that too, I would use that as another example. The U.S. has been ascribed as somehow masterminding the events of the Arab Spring. It's one of the most absurd propositions I've heard in my entire career in intelligence. Yeah, no, I think many people in the Arab world would uh, disagree that uh, the United States is all-powerful like that. But you said uh, people around the world may think that somehow U.S. government hands are at it. I have to say, people can watch our Karaganov interview, but also listen to this Newland phone call. And she is in the Biden administration. I where have, she I've Explicitly, you know, she's ordering things around. That's very rare, arguably. On the other hand, if the government of the United States is not that powerful, what about the private contractors that are making a killing on the money here out of this uh, war? Because if uh, wiser hands, if Donald Trump, the favorite perhaps to become the next president of the United States, says he can end this war tomorrow, uh, there are those who clearly are prolonging the war by the continuation of uh, making masses of money for companies they may end up working for when they leave office. Do you think that is a, a dynamic that you recognize? You have experience of this. People at the CIA right, have gone on right. to make money. Well, I certainly find unsavory the idea of profiting, uh, profiteering off war to the extent, but I consider it a, a subplot. I don't consider it a main event. And, and moreover, if we wanted to talk about uh, the, uh, say, decline now, I believe, of mercenary forces and, and that type of thing, let's look at the case of Russia. Putin found himself after about eight, nine year run of Wagner extending its influence all around the world as a, a, in the same context you're describing. He just found that to be deeply politically destabilizing for his own regime a few, a few weeks ago. And Russia now was in the is in the process of trying to find, figure out how to 
save its assets that it's it's now developed all over the world. Uh, at the same time, you know, putting aside mercenary forces doing the bulk of fighting and war because there's a serious downside. And the U.S. went through this in a, li a little bit in, in Iraq and, and Afghanistan and rejected the notion that we should rely to an ever-extending degree on either paramilitary forces or commercial forces or arms dealers to try to do wars and, and instead conduct them under the authority of the governments. And I would just add to that, when Prigozhin, Yevgeny Prigozhin mounted his uh, rebellion against Putin, which is what it was, uh, he uh, did so because the Russian Ministry of Defense had decided to put Wagner under the Russian Ministry of Defense control, finally, which is where it should have been all along. So I agree with the principle behind your statement, but I would say, you know, I think I think wise countries are increasingly looking at that aspect of war and trying to minimize its effect, particularly on policy and how wars are waged. Rolf Moet-Larsen, I'll stop you there. More from the CIA's former Moscow Station Chief and Senior Fellow at Harvard University's Belfast Center after this break. Welcome back to Going Underground. I'm still here with Rolf Mowat Larson, the CIA's former Moscow Station Chief, and the William J. Perry Distinguished Fellow at the Nuclear Threat Initiative. So uh, we were talking about privatized uh, armies. I'm sure there are lots of things as a former CIA officer you can't tell me about the privatization in, in that way. But do you not think you're minimizing the influence on uh, Blinken's uh, State Department, given that Blinken worked at West Exec, weapons uh, contractor consultant Avril Haynes, director of national intelligence, worked at West Exec, Jake Sullivan, Pentagon contractor Microsoft, Lloyd Austin, Raytheon, Jake Sullivan uh, 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 was also uh, an MI6 cutout macro advisory, Taiwan authority consultant Michel Flory, who uh, is also the Pentagon boss of the Center for New American Security, funded by Raytheon, Northrop Grumman, Lockheed, Boeing, Chevron, and Exxon. Are you saying this is all just by the by? They never have contact really with them, saying, you don't think you can help us a bit more in this war in Ukraine to make some uh, uh, help in the war effort against uh, that evil Putin? Well, I, I do think, of course, these realities exist between the relationships between the corporate sector, the arms providers, and and, and those things become, I would call, a big part of fighting war. But in terms of maintaining guardrails that I will, again, point out autocracies don't have, like Russia's or China's, in, in terms of how the uh, commercial sectors work, I would say there are guardrails and there are distinct laws that apply in these cases, and, and they are administered when people break the laws. Our Political process protects us to the extent that the parties have different views, and there's oversight. I would point out that there's a lot more oversight in the U.S. system by, as we both know, highly polarized parties asserting their influence over what public officials do. So I'd say we have a healthy amount. Are there abuses? Yes. Are there people who cross the line or go over, break the guard? Yes. So and to that extent, I'll acknowledge your, your concern. But I mean, you I say you've talked about the Kennedy assassination. Are you saying the deep right, state right. is no longer as powerful as it was when, according to your allegations, rogue CIA agents assassinated an elected president in the White House? I said John F. Kennedy, CIA. I should say, RFK Jr. Yeah, my, is running right. next year. Right, right. Well, I would say that there's a possibility because if you look back at this, and I've studied the, the period, and I've actually, the reason I started to look deeply into the assassination was because 
two things resulted from it that were highly consequential to where we are today that I think most Americans are not fully aware of. The first is for the first time in the intelligence world came under full congressional oversight in 1979 with what we call the Church Committee Congressional Hearings, which means that CIA had to report to Congress uh, about all of its activities. The second, and, and funding, and the second major change, which at that time I would say we were a fairly rogue organization who were doing things like trying to assassinate world leaders. We stopped doing that. We realized it was bad policy to change governments. We haven't had regime change. Now, I know this might sound, you might think this is naive, but I know this is a matter of my entire experience in government, that the U.S. policy is, a, is not pushing regime change. And if CIA wanted to do it, it would need a presidential, what we call finding. So the other result of the Kennedy assassination is it made CIA activity, and for that matter, military activity, fully uh, responsible under the authority of the wait, president. Wait, wait, so wait. I mean, I, you know, the CIA always says this every 10 years and then goes, yeah, we used to be like this, now we're not. And uh, I mean, I mean, that's, that's going to take some believing, isn't it, altogether? I mean, you just said to me, there are these procedures and so on that work right. to make it better than autocratic states. Obviously, China and Russia say they're not autocratic states and that they are uh, more democratic, arguably, they say, uh, at home than the United States. If, uh, mm -hmm. if Oliver Stone, who's been on this program, people can watch our interviews, who got the congressional change so that the papers could be released, and Joe Biden just in the other month refused to release the papers, on the Kennedy assassination, how much further down the line, how much better has it gone? Well, I do, I've said publicly that I support the uh, the call for releasing all the documents related to the assassination. Uh, whatever they say, whatever, whatever they point to, whether it's embarrassing the CIA or the US government or the leadership or the president, that's fine in my book. And I would also maintain the fundamental difference even when we go wrong. And by the way, your suggestion that sometimes CIA does, does bad things, I mean, I'd be a fool to argue against that. The, the, thing, the, the point I'm arguing against that you're trying to make is that there's a systemic embracing of illegality or say evil in, in embedded into the, the mission and purpose of say CIA. Well clearly and, and you can't have that many there. officers all in on it. I mean, did they do the Nord Stream? We've had Seymour Hersh on this uh, program. I mean, clearly no. the United States accepts my lie. You just reject Seymour Hersh's allegations completely. The CIA did not blow up the Nord Stream pipeline that supplied energy to Western Europe. I can't prove that CIA didn't because I don't know, but I could say that I haven't read anything, including Seymour Hersh's, which I've read, his piece, that provided any evidence. Well, so, Biden I mean, said he I, would end it. The president said he would end it. That's not evidence that the U.S. conducted a covert action. In fact, the, the, it makes no sense to me that the Russians did it. It also makes no sense to me that the U.S. did it. So I'm still looking in an objective way, and I'll take... Take it where the facts lead me. The problem today is people do buy into anything anybody says without substantiation. And the more serious the allegation is, the more incumbent is on that person to provide the evidence. And that's all I'm suggesting here is that if you're if if charges are going to be made like that, then they should be substantiated, not assume because the idea of the U.S. is we do these things. Now, you know, well, that's I not what Seymour Hersh said. In fairness, it was that he had a source, and previously his sources have always right. been uh, true. He's he's been uh, vindicated. Often. That's not true either, by the way. But 
I mean, he's no better than any other journalist, but I'd be more comfortable with that kind of allegation. First, if it made sense to me, which it doesn't, but then I'll set that aside. Second, whether there was a, a plethora of evidence and then other journalists provided supporting evidence for yeah, it. Yeah, but that's the I'm point, better. isn't it? In this age of when journalism is under attack in the United States, Tucker Carlson opposing the Ukraine war was the most popular uh, cable anchor, fired from Murdoch's uh, Fox News. We know about trying to get Julian Assange extradited and uh, the Pentagon Papers whistleblower recently died, Dan Ellsberg, said he was a hero just like he was in that situation. I mean, what? So we should believe the New York Times that it was could be a Ukraine operation to destroy Nord Stream, which is very important. The UN Security Council debated it this week, and maybe tens of thousands of people may have died because of the cold, because of the instability of energy prices, let alone the environmental impact. You believe it could be in the Ukraine? Well, I believe it could have been. Again, I'm not going to accuse Ukraine. But you said it wasn't Biden that, or the CIA. No, it wasn't. The, it, well, there's no evidence at all that it was. And it would have had to have been, if it was a U.S. decision, it would have had to come from the president because CIA would not have conduct, could not have conducted an operation without presidential direct authority. That's the point I want to stress here. He we says have, that too, Ty well, Hirsch in the article. Yeah, yeah. So I, I will also emphasize one last thing that that I know will sound probably absurd to you, but but there we I personally couldn't have done what I did for an entire career if I didn't believe that that fundamentally we're into the truth seeking business, not the truth truth altering or the truth suppression business. Uh, have we altered truth or tried to or suppressed it? Yes, and those were our bad moments. I say those were our bad cases. Those are the account. That's the accountability we need before not just the American people but the world. But I, I would suggest to you that the preponderance of things we do are done in the spirit of advancing the values and virtues of not only our own system, but but I would say globally. So uh, the worst conspiracy theories I see spun over the decades I've seen conspiracy theories are the flimsy ones that are premised only on the thought that CIA must be an evil organization because what we do, we, we do in secrecy and therefore there must be abuses of power. We are actually more beholden to abuse of power than any other organization in the U.S. government. Uh, because when we do things in secret, it can go terribly wrong when we're not under a proper authority. So uh, again, I'm, I'm agreeing with you that there have been abuses and there are probably are abuses, but it's not the way the system is built. And the things we do that that advance what we're trying to do, I think outweigh the things that are that are that are the wrong. Well, a few years back, if you told me this Kennedy CIA story, I would have thought that seemed pretty conspiratorial, uh, arguably. But surely more important, and as regards what's happening to the CIA right now, we'll have to wait till for Bill Burns' uh, memoirs to see what's really going on, because he was in Moscow as ambassador and certainly is talking right. a very different game these days than he did then. So we'll wait for that CIA memoir. But of course, what's dangerous is if it was Ukraine not taking orders or disobeying orders from Washington, we then have a country under Zelensky or the oligarchs that run Ukraine having billions of dollars worth of U.S. public money worth of weapons acting outside of any U.S. orders. Does that create uh, a geopolitical danger and perhaps greater chances of, as Donald Trump frontrunner in next year's general election in the U.S., uh, what he said, it, it makes World War III more likely? Well, I wouldn't raise it to World War III, but your your point's a good one. The, the U.S. doesn't, and I've stressed this in other ways, so I'm not going to contradict myself now. The U.S. doesn't control 
what Ukraine does. There, there are presumably discussions, and I'm sure very intimate and, and pointed discussions, uh, what we like and don't like. But in the end, Ukraine makes its own decisions. President Zelensky is, is, is the furthest thing from a U.S. puppet president I could think of. Early in the war, he didn't even take our advice, and that was probably a good thing for Ukraine. And as regards what Ukrainian intelligence does, for example, conducting, uh, presumably it's Ukraine conducting sabotage attacks in Russia and assassinations, et cetera, uh, I'm sure the U.S. isn't uh, involved directly in those things. Now, we have our very strict laws in 9-11 honed our skills at discerning where our own legal limits lie. We can't be involved in intelligence activity by a third country uh, or a partner of ours that violates U.S. law. For the American public watching, we'll be surprised that they're giving 80 billion, billion, tens of billions of dollars while their infrastructure is a disaster and 40 million uh, can't uh, eat tonight in the United States without the SNAP food program because they would expect some sort of ability to tell Zelensky what to do as they export weapons that could threaten them at home because as you work on uh, at, uh, as regards nuclear deterrence, obviously New York, Los Angeles can be destroyed very quickly. Well, certainly we have an influence. I didn't say we don't have an influence. I'm saying when it, you, you asked a very specific question about bombing uh, Nord Stream or conducting other operational things that intelligence does, Those are, that's what I was referring to. Of course, the U.S. influences Ukrainian decisions and policymakers, but ultimately, they are. The, it is their decision what to do. So I don't I don't think that's a good bad thing. I think that's a good thing. And I think the the, the real stakes in this war get back to your original question opening up our, our discussion, which is why are we providing all these weapons to Ukraine? What is our purpose? The US and the NATO partners, the NATO summit right now bears this out, has made a strategic decision that Ukraine's the outcome of this war is essential to the future of security in Europe and the United States, and therefore we must assist Ukraine. That is, and the they're making political. making Europe more secure. The export of absolutely. all these weapons. Uh, well, absolutely, because Putin went on a course that started with Ukraine becoming independent of destabilizing Ukraine in order to bring it back into. But Russia's you can see they don't think that the Russians don't think that most of the world by population as their envoys in, uh, at the UN said, no, we're not going to condemn Russia. And you can see the rest of the world forming alliances and like BRICS and so on. So uh, I'm not sure how it, more weapons make things more secure. I mean, just very quickly, because you're an expert on these things. Yeah, yeah. What, what about medical supplies? I mean, obviously, uh, medical supplies, some would say, would be more useful than any weapons to this uh, conflict at the moment and right. peace talks, which you probably would agree with. What about medical supplies as regards tactical nuclear weapon use? Should they be being distributed in Europe? I think I think there should be some, some not necessarily in Europe. Uh, I, I don't think we should hype the threat. I think we should first try to deter Putin from using them. It is not in Russia's interest to use him. He's not irrational. So hopefully he'll conclude that. Second, we have to have what we would call a response prepared that would be credible enough to Putin where the risks don't outweigh the gains he would feel he had by using them. And then third is making modest preparations, not for something that's a likely event, but something that's not a, a zero percent 
possibility. And then we must make a distinction between the use of a tactical nuclear weapon on the battlefield, for example, and strategic nuclear weapons that would obliterate the world and lead to an uncontrollable nuclear arms race. There's a big gap between those two threats and risks. The one that's most prominent that we need to be focused on the most now in Ukraine is, is that the war would escalate in the same way cluster bombs have escalated to the extent they have to the point where it becomes attractive for the Russians to use tactical nuclear weapons on the battlefield or against the Ukrainian strategic target. That's what right now we need to be concerned about most, not worry about global nuclear you know, annihilation. Rolf Mertlassen, thank you. Avshin, thank you. You set me up, but I still enjoyed our conversation a great deal. Set anyone up. That's it for the show. We'll be back on Monday with the former Deputy Undersecretary of the U.S. Navy, Dr. Seth Cropsey. But until then, you can keep in touch via all our social media if it's not censored in your country and head to our channel, Going Underground TV on Rumble.com to watch new and old episodes of Going Underground. See you Monday.